All right, well, if you're ready to open up God's Word, say, let's go. Okay, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13, which is where we're going to be this morning. It's wonderful to hear about the mission opportunities coming up. And what an honor and joy to get to be part of God's work. I mean, we get to be part of ministry that's happening here in East Texas with ministries like Hope Road, but also to the ends of the earth. And uh, it is a total uh, joy and privilege to participate in what God is doing in this place. Genesis 13 is where we're going to be this morning as we talk about when your trust is tested. When your trust is tested. If you've ever seen a large hydraulic press in action, then you know that there's very little that it can't crush. I saw a a video uh, recently where without any resistance, a, a hydraulic press just crushed all kinds of objects. In a, in a press, thousands of pounds of pressure are applied, and it can just squash all kinds of items that just bend and break under that pressure. As we come to Genesis chapter 13, we're reminded that in our lives, there are all kinds of circumstances that can feel to us like a hydraulic press just crushing, pressing, pressing in, squashing in on us that test the strength of our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, Peter says that the genuineness of our faith will often be put to the test. And sometimes those tests can come out of left field. They can come from surprising places. They can face us in surprising ways. Genesis chapter 13 is about a conflict that arises in the life of Abram that puts his trust in God to the test. Now, to set the stage, this is really the second time in two chapters that Abram's faith has been tested. In chapter 12, he fails the test. He goes down to Egypt because a famine has entered into the land. And so he flees Canaan, goes down to Egypt looking for food, and he realizes that his wife Sarah is very beautiful, and he's fearful that Pharaoh will take his wife and kill him in the process. And so instead of trusting God in that moment to protect him and protect his family, instead he takes things into his own hands, he manipulates the situation, he acts with a lack of integrity, he acts deceptively, he lies, and he says that his wife is actually his sister. And Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's harem And it is an absolute disaster. In chapter 12, you can just write over Abram's life. It is deep failure. Even so, the beginning of chapter 12, God had promised to to, to bless Abram. And God's faithfulness to his promise is not dependent on our faithfulness. It's dependent on his faithfulness. And so even though Abram has failed deeply, even in the midst of that failure, God still honors his word. God still keeps his promise. God is still faithful to take care of Abram and to bless him. And so even in the midst of this devastating failure, Abram is prospered by God and he's enriched and God brings blessing to Abram's family and he brings cursing to Pharaoh's house, which is exactly what he promised to do in chapter 12, verses one through three, that he would bless Abram and curse his enemies. That's what's happening in chapter 12. But clearly in chapter 12, this is a clear failure on Abram's part. Genesis chapter 13 represents another test, another opportunity for Abram to demonstrate his trust in God. But before we dive in, I want you to see what happens 
in Abram's life before that test comes. I want you to see that the story begins in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, with Abram having a, a fresh encounter with God. That's exactly what Abram needs. He's just been down to Egypt. He's had this massive failure. He's made a mess of things. And what he needs now is a fresh encounter with God, which is what he experiences at the beginning of the chapter. So let's read beginning in verse 1. It says, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Now, you'll remember that Lot is Abram's nephew, and he's been with Abram in this whole journey out of Ur, coming to Canaan. He's gone down with him to Egypt. Now they all come back out of Egypt. In verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, <clears throat> and gold. Now you ask, how was Abram so rich? Well, because of what happened in chapter 12. He lies about his wife. Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem and in exchange gives Abram flocks and herds and servants. Later in the story, you're going to read about Hagar, who's an Egyptian servant. You might wonder, where did an Egyptian servant come into Abram's family? Well, it's chapter 12. In Egypt, they, they, get, they become very wealthy and prosperous. And so he's very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And verse 3, it says, he went by stages from the Negev. Now, the Negev, the word in Hebrew just means south, okay? It refers to the southern part of the land of Canaan, uh, there in the very bottom. It's just an arid desert. He went by stages from the Negev, the southern part of the land, up towards Bethel, which is the northern part of the land, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been. Notice this, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. All right, let's stop right there. Abram <clears throat> needs a fresh encounter with God after what happened in Egypt. In Egypt, his life was not marked by faithfulness, but faithlessness. It was not marked by trust in God, but doubt in God. Not marked by asking God to intervene, but rather Abram taking things into his own hands, manipulating the situation for his own sake. Total failure. And after that failure, Abram needs repentance and renewal. He needs a new beginning. He needs a fresh start with God. He needs a brand new start in his relationship with God. He needs an encounter with God after this deep failure that has occurred in his life. And so that's exactly what happens in verses one through four. He gets a fresh start. He gets a new beginning. Folks, that's what the grace of God is, that no matter what kind of mess you've made, no matter what kind of mistakes or deep failure you might have experienced, that in Christ, you can get a new start. Amen? That's grace. The, the Bible's language for that, Jesus talks about being born again. How many of you have ever made a mistake and you've said, man, if I could just go back and start over. Anybody ever made a mistake like that? Like if I could just go back and do it over again, I would do it differently. Folks, that's the goodness of the grace of God that in Christ and because of his work, no matter what kind of mess you might've made of things and all of us make big messes, that in Christ, you can get a brand new start. You can start over. You can be born again. It's as if you have started over from the very beginning. That's what Abram needs in his life. He needs to encounter the love and generosity of God's grace, a new beginning in the aftermath of his failure. And so that's exactly what happens in verses one through four. He's been down in this place of failure in Egypt, but he comes back to the land. And notice, I want you to notice the language here because it's, it's very intentional. Abram comes up from Egypt and goes to the Negev. 
And then he goes up by stages towards Bethel. Now, pay attention to that language because it is a direct reversal of the language that is used in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, that talks about Abram's journey down to Egypt. Look back at chapter 12 and verse 9. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while. So journeying by stages, going down to Egypt. Now, chapter 13 and verse 1, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. Verse 3, he went by stages from the Negev to Bethel. You see, there's a direct reversal. It's like there's a descent and then there's an ascent. He's been going down to Egypt. Now, Abram travels up from Egypt and by stages through the Negev. And that reversal in Abram's journey really reflects a reversal in Abram's spiritual direction as well. This is more about what's happened, more than, than just what's happening geographically. There's something happening spiritually in Abram's life. It's very intentional to say, this is the direction he was heading, and then he goes exactly the opposite way. Notice he goes back in verse four, uh, verses three and four, he goes back to Bethel. You'll remember that Bethel is where in chapter 12, before this whole episode in Egypt, Abram had built an altar to the Lord. Then he goes down to Egypt, he has this deep failure, but then he comes back and where does he go? Back to the altar. He goes back to that place of worship that he had built. He goes back to Bethel, back where he'd built the altar and the text tells us he called on the name of the Lord there. This represents a return to the Lord after Abram's failure in Egypt. He's going back to that place of worship, that altar where he had experienced the Lord, and he begins once more to call on the name of the Lord. Now, listen, calling on the name of the Lord is what Abram should have done in Egypt. He goes down to Egypt. He faces this crisis with Pharaoh. In that moment, he should have called on the name of the Lord and said, God, intervene. God, protect my wife. God, protect my life. God, protect my family. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He takes things into his own hands like we so often do. Instead of turning to the Lord, we treat prayer as a last resort instead of a first response. We say, no, thank you, God. I've got this. That's what Abram does. And that led to disaster. And it seems here that Abram has learned his lesson. He's learned that it is disastrous when you take things into your own hands rather than trusting God. So now he, he goes back to that place of God-centeredness where he had been before. He goes back to Bethel. And this is, folks, listen, this is not just about his physical location. This is about his spiritual condition. He's repenting. He's going back to that place where he had met with the Lord before. And folks, that's exactly what we should do in the aftermath of failure Here's the truth. This is a hard truth, but it's the truth. Failure is going to come in your life. Not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when and how. And what matters when you experience failure in your life as a believer, and that will come, what matters is how you respond in that failure. Abram here models for us that the right response to failure is repentance. He's made a mistake, he realizes the mistake, he sees it for what it is, and he literally turns direction and he goes back to that place where he had met the Lord. Folks, when we go through failure in our life, when we experience the consequences of our sin, we realize what our mistakes have brought, 
the right response to that is repentance, to realize that mistake for what it is, to turn away from that and come back to the place where the Lord is at the center. That's what repentance is. It's, it's re- returning to that place in your life where God is at the center. And this shows us that It's interesting, if you trace like Abram's journey in chapter 12 and chapter 13, you see a cycle here of of faithfulness and failure. Uh, Chapter 12 begins with Abram kind of having a mountaintop moment with God. God calls him to leave everything behind and, and to go to a place that he would show him. And Abram obeys God. He believes God. He takes this great big bold step of faith. He's on the mountaintop, and immediately after that, he gets to the valley because he goes down to Egypt and has this massive failure. But then immediately after that, in chapter 13, he comes back to Bethel to this place of worship, and he calls on the name of the Lord again. It's like he's at the mountaintop and the valley and the mountaintop, and it's like riding a roller coaster to follow Abram's life. That is true to the Christian life, isn't it? There's a cycle of faithfulness and failure and faithfulness again and failure again. You're going to have ups and you're going to have downs. There are times when you're going to take three steps forward and then two steps back. Has anybody ever experienced that in their life? Can I get a witness? You take three steps forward, two steps back. That's normal. Okay, if you're a new follower of Jesus and you maybe have taken a step back, Just understand that's a normal experience in the Christian life. Abram shows us that. But what matters is not that you take three steps forward and two steps back. What matters is that you don't stop there. Don't stop in the valley. Don't stay in that desert place. What matters, and this this happens to a lot of Christians, they've experienced the mountaintop and now boom, here's a trial, right? You experience some great moment of spiritual victory and it's followed by some great moment of spiritual temptation or spiritual discouragement and you're in a desert place, so many Christians just stop right there without realizing that there's a Canaan on the other side of the desert. There's a promised land to come, and what they need to do is just to continue to take a step forward. The key is how you respond. The key to continued growth and progress in your walk with Christ is that in those moments of sin and failure, you don't stop and stay. You turn back to the Lord in repentance and renewal. And here's what happens when you do that. Here's what happens. When you've made a mistake and you've experienced failure and you're in the valley or you're in the desert, but you make the decision to turn back and come back to the altar, come back to that place of worship, first of all, you're going to experience God's grace and mercy. The Bible tells us that God's mercies are new. How often? Every morning. You know why that's important? Because we we need his mercy every morning. Every single morning, we need the mercy and the grace of God. And here's the beauty of God's grace. He gives and he gives and he gives, and his grace never runs out. You can never reach the bottom of that cup of grace. He's just ready and eager to continue to pour it out. And no matter how far you have run, no matter how long you've been in that desert place, the moment that you will turn back toward that God-centeredness in your life, the Lord will show you his grace and mercy. What you'll actually realize is that he never left you. You might have wandered from him, but he didn't wander from you. And when you turn back towards him, what you'll find is he's been there the whole time waiting for you to come home, right? When the prodigal son returns home, what is the father of the prodigal son doing? He is out searching for his son, eager to welcome him home and throw a party for him. And that's, that's our God. That is his grace. And so when you turn in repentance to the, Lord, to the Lord, you'll find in an encounter with God, you'll experience his grace, But the second thing that will happen is that that God-centeredness, that return to the altar, that will shape your character in such a way 
that you will look a little bit more like Christ on the back end of that failure than you did at the front end. God will use that failure and that repentance to mold, shape, and form you to look someone who looks a little bit more like Jesus than you did before. That's exactly what happens in Abram's life. God uses this encounter to shape his character in a way that's going to influence how he responds to the test ahead. Verse 5, the test of his trust arrives. So let's look at see what happens. In verse 5, a conflict with a brother emerges. Look down at verse 5. It says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, right? So Abram has been made wealthy in Egypt, but so has Lot. Verse 6, it actually presents a problem. The land was unable to support them both as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of, of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So, he, so here's what's happening, right? So Abram and Lot have gone down to Egypt where they've experienced this failure, but in the process of that failure, God has blessed them and enriched them and prospered them. And now they're, they're so enriched that their possessions and flocks and herds have multiplied so much that the land is not able to sustain both of them. Uh, in West Texas, where I used to pastor back in the day, there used to be range wars between ranchers over who had grazing rights for their cattle. And so they would, they would have these conflicts that would emerge over who could occupy what piece of the land. The same thing is happening right here. Abram and Lot have an overabundance of wealth and possessions, but a limited amount of land. And so a conflict emerges between the cowboys. Who gets to graze their cattle Where? Who's going to have what part of the land for their donkeys? There may be a sense in these verses of, of desperation over the remaining good parts of the land because the text tells us that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are already inhabiting the land. So likely, those tribes probably already have the best parts of the land. And now, there's a sense here that the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot are having to fight over the remaining scraps. Who's going to get the good part? Who's going to be able to graze their herd on the best parts of the land. We, 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 we do this as well, right? Maybe you don't have a herd of donkeys, but maybe there's something in you that feels like you want to make sure that you have gained the advantage in your life, that you have secured the best portion for yourself, that you make sure that you kind of get yours, that your future and your security are taken care of. And, and sometimes we reach and grasp and cling to try to make sure we get the best part. That's exactly what's happening with the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot, this conflict. This shows us, by the way, that sometimes prosperity is a greater test of faithfulness than adversity. Have you ever noticed that in your life? When you're desperate and you're experiencing poverty, it's easy to recognize your need for God. But when you've experienced plenty your needs are taken care of. It's easy to forget God or ignore God or don't think that you need God. And sometimes, certainly poverty and adversity can be a test of faith, but often the greater test of a person's faithfulness is not how they respond in times of poverty, but how they respond in times of plenty. What you do when you have abundance is often a greater test of your faith than when you're tested by adversity. Will you still be faithful with abundance and prosperity? Here, Abram and Lot 
they have not a test of failure, but a test of success. <laughs> they are enriched. They are wealthy. They have so many possessions. The question is, how are they going to handle those things? Are they going to handle their wealth with faithfulness? Abram's experience with the Lord at Bethel, at the altar, this encounter with God that he has at the beginning of the chapter, it's put to the test here with a surprising person, Lot, and in a surprising way in his relationship to this land that God has promised to give him. You know, sometimes tests can come out of nowhere. I think Abram would have anticipated conflict with the Canaanites. Here he's moving into the land. He would anticipate, you know, battles with outsiders. He didn't anticipate a conflict from within, from within his own family, from his nephew. And so here is this surprising test. What are you going to do with all of your possessions? What are you going to do with the land? How will he respond to this conflict with his brother Lot? Will Abram once again, like he did in chapter 12, will he once again take things into his own hands, manipulate the situation to ensure his own best interests? Will he lie and deceive and act with a lack of integrity? Will he, will he grasp and cling and try to make sure, you know, kind of this idea of like, if I don't get mine, I'll miss out. Is he going to be desperate like that to ensure his own best interests? This conflict amounts to a test of his trust. How would his trust in God inform his actions in this moment? Well, let's look at verses 8 through 13, where we see Abram and Lot respond. They step into this conflict, right? They're herdsmen. Brothers and sisters here are fighting, so mom and dad step in. They're going to work out a solution. And here we're going to see a confident offer and a concerning choice, okay? That's in verses 8 through 13. So let's read beginning in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. Why? Because we're brothers. We're relatives. Now, Lot is technically his nephew. He calls him his brother, though, here. She's saying, we're, we're very close. We're like brothers. He's saying, our relationship matters more than this stuff, right? If you've ever been part of uh, someone passing away and they leave a will and you have to sit down with family members and figure out who gets what, sometimes people put the stuff over the relationship. Here, Abram says, the relationship matters more than the stuff. So let's not fight about this. Isn't the whole land before you? Here's his confident offer in verse 9. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, look at what Lot does. We have a concerning choice here in verse 10. Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar. He saw that it was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden, right? The Garden of Eden. He, he sees this land. He's like, it reminds me of paradise, of Eden. And it reminds him of the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. And then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan. But Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now, anytime you see the, the word Sodom in the text, you ought to say, ooh. <laughs> now, the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. All right, so here in picking the land, right? So here's what happens. The herdsmen are fighting over the land. Who's going to get the best part? Who gets the right to graze their cattle on which field? Abram and Lot step in, let's say, they, they say, okay, let's come up with a solution. And so they decide who's going to take what part of the land. And in picking the land, one of them gives freely. 
The other chooses selfishly and, as we're going to see, foolishly. One responds out of confidence in the Lord. The other makes a concerning choice. Let's just trace out how they respond. Abram's solution to the conflict in verse 8 is to give Lot the pick of the litter. You notice what he says? He says, hey, look, I'm not going to try to grasp to make sure I get the best part. You go ahead and pick the land first. You go ahead and, and make your choice. If you pick the left, I'll take the right. If you pick the right, I'll pick the left. Abram says, basically, listen, I will draw the short stick on purpose. That's the original Hebrew. Okay, I'll take the short stick. You get the best part. You can pick first. What a contrast. When you think, uh, remember back to the Cain and Abel story? You remember Cain kills his brother Abel, God confronts him about it, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for the welfare of my brother? Here, Abram takes responsibility for the welfare of his brother. He becomes his brother's keeper. Here, Abram very generously make sure that his relatives are taken care of. And so he magnanimously gives Lot the right to choose the best land for himself first. As the leader of the family, Abram had the prerogative to choose first and to choose the best for himself. But amazingly, surprisingly, he responds with incredible deference and generosity and open-handedness towards Lot. Now think about what a contrast with Abram's actions in chapter 12, where he does everything that he can do to ensure his own best interest. I will, I will even lie about my wife. I will allow my wife to become a member of Pharaoh's harem just so long as I take care of number one. That was Abram's mentality in chapter 12. Then he encounters the Lord, comes back to that altar place in Bethel. Something changes fundamentally in Abram's character so that now instead of trying to preserve his own best interests, he seeks the best interest of Lot. Lot, you choose first. I'll take the leftovers. R. Kent Hughes says this, what a change from the calculating, self-serving schemer that he was in Egypt. In Egypt, he had trusted nothing but his own shrewdness. Now Abram is so remarkably different. He takes no thought for tomorrow. The contrast between the two narratives could not be more defined. In the former, Abram was consumed with survival. In the present, he risks all in light of the promise. <laughs> Abram looks a lot like Jesus here, who, who in Philippians 2 says to, to look out not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Abram is living that out in this moment. You have to wonder, what could be motivating him to do this? What could motivate Abram to respond with that kind of generosity in this moment? Well, hold that thought. What did Lot choose? Well, in verse 10, Lot chose what looked to be the most prosperous part of the land. The land that he chooses is down by the Jordan River. And if you know the geography of Israel, you know that Israel has two major mountain ranges, one in the west, one in the east. Between them is a river valley, the Jordan River Valley, which connects the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. And in between, there's the, the, the river valley. And so up on the mountain ranges, is very arid. But down in that river valley, it is very lush. It is well watered. That's what the text tells us in verse 10. He sees it, that the whole plain of the Jordan River is well watered everywhere. That means it's going to be good for farming. It's going to be lush. It's, it's going to be uh, very attractive. 
It says that in, in uh, Lot's eyes, this looked like the Lord's garden, <laughs> which he had never been to Eden, assuming uh, after the flood, he probably never went to Eden, but he'd probably heard stories about what the Garden of Eden might be like. And he, so he looks at the River Valley, he's like, man, this looks like the Garden of Eden. And the text says it looked to him like Egypt, which is where he's just come from in chapter 12. He's just been down in Egypt. Egypt is very prosperous, very lush. He looks at the river, uh, Jordan River Valley. He says, boy, this looks like Eden. It looks like Egypt. This looks prosperous. This looks good for me. I will take the Jordan River Valley. This is enviable land in Lot's eyes. But there is more to this land that he chooses than first meets the eyes. Now, I want you to think about Lot's eyes for just a moment. I know you all woke up this morning thinking about Lot's eyes. <laughs> but actually, there's a focus in the text on Lot's eyes and what he can see. Do you notice in verse 10, Lot looked and saw? He look, there's looking and there's seeing the entire plain of the Jordan, and he chose what he could see, right? He's looking and he's seeing. There's a sense here that Lot is choosing based on what his eyes can see. There's a sense that Lot is not walking by faith. He is walking by sight, by what his eyes can see. But sometimes you can't always see all that's there. Things are not always what they appear at first to our human point of view. There's more to this land than meets the eye, and it's not good. And there are a couple of ominous indicators in the text that signal us to the idea that Lot, who has chosen the land that he's looked at and seen, that he's actually made a foolish choice here. The first indicator in the text is when it says that he moves eastward. Do you see that in the text in verse 11? Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. Now, you've read enough about the book of Genesis now to know that anytime you see people moving towards the east, that's not a good thing, right? Remember Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They're expelled from, from the Garden of Eden. And in which direction are they expelled? East of Eden. So there's a sense that God's presence in Eden, if you're moving east, you're moving further and further away from the presence of God. The very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel and God banishes Cain from the land, in which direction does Cain go? The east, moving further from God's presence, right? When you fast forward to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel story, where is Babel? In Shinar, in the, in the east. Here, Lot chooses the Jordan River Valley. He actually moves to the east of that. So there's a sense that in this choice, he is actually moving even further away from the presence of God. And not only that, we get another indication in the text, and that's in verses 12 and 13. Another indication that he's chosen foolishly is that he moves his tent near Sodom. Sodom. All right. It's going to appear later in the story. We'll get there in probably five or six years, all right? <laughs> you know what happens to that place? Destruction, right? And we're even told about that coming destruction in verse, uh, what is that, verse 10? Uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the text is telling us, hey, this is going to be a place that's going to be destroyed, right? And then, and then in verse uh, 12, that's where he moves his tent to this place that is going to be receiving the judgment of God. And, 
In case anybody wasn't aware of how bad this place was, look at the description in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, this is very intentional language. In fact, this is the most vivid description of human evil anywhere in the book of Genesis. The author is stacking word after word after word to show you how evil this place is, that it was evil, they were sinning immensely, and in case you missed it, it was against the Lord. And this is where Lot chooses to move. To his eyes, it looks like the place to be. From the narrator's perspective, which we give the, get the advantage of the 30,000-foot view, you know he's made a foolish choice. We might say it this way in our day and time. It's like saying Lot chose to move to San Francisco. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> We've got a guest from L.A. today, but he's originally a Texan, I think. So I told him, hey, there's going to be a little California joke today. Don't be offended. But, but for most Texans, we would say, oh, my goodness, who would ever move there? This might be like saying he bought an apartment on the strip in Las Vegas. It might be like saying he moved into the red light district or he bought an apartment on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. This is not a good choice. Lot chooses the glamour of Vegas, but he also chooses to associate himself with the sin of Vegas. And by the way, church, that, that shows us we need to be careful what we wish for. What may look in our eyes enviable on the surface might be deeply harmful to us spiritually. God's, God's ways don't always look on the outside like something enviable. God's ways often are upside down and backwards. In the world's eyes, a life lived for God may seem like it's not enviable or it's not going to be prosperous. It's not going to be beneficial. I mean, look, Christ doesn't come in a palace. He comes in a manger. The world may look on the outside more attractive. But this story shows us that walking by what we can see, walking by sight, leads to a very different destination and has a very different reward than walking by faith. I mean, Lot's reward for walking by sight is that he gets Sodom. Just making sure you're awake. And that choice is going to immediately complicate Lot's life in the very next chapter, which Lord willing and the creek don't rise, we'll look at next week immediately it's going to complicate his life, and in the end, it's going to ruin his life. It's going to ruin his family. This foolish, selfish, sightly choice, human sightly choice, is going to ruin Lot's family. It's going to complicate Israel's life for generations, as we'll see in a few chapters. And by the way, He's going to end up in Zoar. Did you notice that he, he looked and he saw as far as Zoar? You know, at the end of his story in Genesis chapter 19, he ends up in Zoar as Sodom and Gomorrah experiences the destruction that God brings. He flees to Zoar, which is where his life and his family gets destroyed. It ends in disaster. But here's the deal. He gets as far as his eyes could see. He saw Zoar. He says, I want to go as far as there. That's exactly where he ended up. He got as far 
as his eyes could see. That's not a good thing. Abram got a different reward. Look at what happens in verses 14 through 18. In these last few verses, God responds to Abram's generosity with a confirmation of his promise. Look at what happens beginning in verse 14. It says, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. This gives us the answer to the question that I asked a few moments ago, which is this. What could motivate Abram to have such generosity with Lot? What could, what could be motivating Abram to be so open-handed with the land and his future? This is the answer. Abram trusted the promises of God. Alan Ross says that the one who believed that God promised to give him the land did not have to reserve it for himself. In other words, because Abram now, having encountered God in Bethel at the altar, now he's realized what a failure it is to not trust God. Now Abram so trusts God with his future that he's willing to say to Lot, you take the pick of the litter, you get first choice, I'm just going to trust God with it. And God responds to that by, by affirming and confirming his promise. Look at the contrast here between what happened with Lot and what's happening with Abram. Lot, you notice in verse 10, he looks and he sees. But in verse 14, God tells Abram, look. He says it twice. Look at the land. Look at what I'm going to give you. Look north and west and east and south. Alan Ross says Abram was told to lift up his eyes, but Lot simply did it. Abram was waiting for God to give it. Lot simply took it for himself. Here, God rewards Abram's faith by confirming his promise to give him the land. God is giving Abram all he had promised to give him. Did you notice the the use of the word all in verse 15? Look at it. I'll give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. Abram would get every bit of the land God had promised. Notice the language, verse 14, of north, south, east, west. This is comprehensive. Notice in verse 17 how he tells him to walk through its length and its width. This reminds me of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 where he prays that we would know the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for us. Here, Abram is experiencing the overabundant generosity of God and his grace here. God is saying to Abram, you trusted me with everything. You trusted me with the land. You trusted me with the future. You gave it into my hands. And so I'm going to give it all to you. I think it was Jim Elliott who said, nothing will truly be yours that has not first been given away. Abram here models for us how to just open our hands to God and say, God, everything I've got, it's yours. Everything that I am, it's yours. My future, it's yours. The land is yours. God, I'm just going to trust you. You've been, you've been making promises to me. I'm trusting you now with everything. Abram just gives it all in this, in this magnanimous act towards Lot and trust God. And God looks at that and says, because you've trusted me, I'll give it all to you. This is what's going to happen in chapter 22, again, five or six years from now when we make it there. God calls Abram to sacrifice Isaac. 
his one and only son. I want you, Isaac, to give me that which is most important to you. And Abram says, God, it's yours. And God says to Abraham, no, he's yours. You've entrusted that which is most precious to you to me. I will give it all to you. Nothing will truly be yours until you've given it away. God says, I'm going to give you every single bit that I promised. And by the way, did you notice the word dust here in this text? Notice he says, I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth. This is beautiful because the last time the word dust was used was back in Genesis chapter 3 as part of the curse. Part of the curse was that man would return to the dust. Here, that concept is flipped on its head. The movement in Genesis goes from dust being used in reference to judgment to dust being used as a symbol of God's gracious blessing on Abram's family. I'm going to multiply you like the dust of the earth. So so what could motivate Abram to be so generous to Lot? Here's how. Only a very real experience with the generosity of God's grace. When you experience God's generosity to you, It translates into being generous and grace-giving to others. Only God's grace can give you the resources for this. When you realize all that you have in Christ, it frees you to give everything you have away. When you realize all that Christ has done for you, it allows you to be open-handed with your life. When you think about the fact that God sent his son to live a perfectly obedient life so that you could be righteous, God sent his son to, live a, to, to, to die a vicarious death on the cross for you in your place, to be raised victoriously from the grave, to be able to give you eternal life and a future and a hope where Christ is your inheritance and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God's presence and power in your life. When you think about all that God has given you, you can be open-handed and freely give generously to the people that God has entrusted to you as your neighbor. Look at all God has given to me. I have what matters most, so I can be free with the land. I can be free with the, with the future. I can be free with my possessions. I can just be grace-giving and generous to my neighbor. Kent Hughes says, what difference does the geography make when our vision is that of a city whose architect and builder is God? See what he's saying? Because Abram knew what really mattered. It doesn't matter where you graze your cattle. Right, listen, if if this life is all there is, then you will become a selfish, self-seeking, self-serving, grasping person because this is your one shot. So I've got to be it all. I've got to do it all. I've got to have it all. I've got to experience it all. I've got to take that vacation. I've got to have that home. I must drive that card because this is my one shot to experience it. But if this life is not all there is, and there is a life of the age to come, then you don't have to have it all and do it all and be it all and experience it all in this momentary breath of a life because you know that true life is coming in the future and you will experience the deepest joy as you realize Christ as your inheritance for all of eternity. And so you you can give your life away. You see, the gospel frees you. The gospel gives you the resources to give your life away because you know this is not, this little momentary life is not true life. It allows you to live for the things that will matter 10,000 years from now, Abram got it. So instead of having to grasp, he was able to give away all he had to give. 
God confirms the promise. How does Abram respond? Here's where I'm, I'm, the sermon's over, all right? Let me give you the last verse. Verse 18, look at, what, look, look at what happens. It's beautiful. Verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron. Oh, look at this. Where he built, let's say it together, he built an altar to the Lord. The story is bookended by Abram's time at the altar. I love the way Derek Kidner puts it. He says, tent and altar epitomized Abram's way of life. <laughs> you notice that? Abram just moves his tent from place to place to place. He never, like, puts down roots. He never builds a house. He never builds a building. He just moves his tent from one place to the other. Abram didn't get too comfortable in this world. And the only monuments he left behind him were altars. A tent, a life marked by a tent is the life of a sojourner. The life of a pilgrim, a life who realizes that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through, so I'm not going to get too comfortable here. That's the life of the tent. The life of the altar is a life oriented Godward, a life marked by devotion to God who understands what really matters in this life. Let's let our lives be marked by the tent and by the altar. When, when you live... This kind of way, it's freedom. May our lives be epitomized by the tent, living as sojourners who aren't quite at home in this world. And may our lives be marked by the altar, worshipers who leave nothing behind us but altars everywhere we go. Amen? Let's bow together. If you need prayer this morning, or you have a spiritual decision to make, or you need someone to talk with you about how to know Jesus Christ, how to have these kind of resources, how to know the gospel, how to have Christ as your inheritance, I would love to talk with you. After the service, I'm going to be down here at the front for a few minutes. I'm just going to linger. I'll wait around. And so if you'd like to have a conversation or prayer, you come and talk to me. Lord, we are so thankful for your vast resources in Christ. We're thankful Ephesians 1.3 says that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us uncomfortable, not quite at home in this world. Help us to hold our lives and our things with open hands towards our neighbors. Help us to trust your promises when those tests come. Help us to live our lives oriented toward the altar. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.